Hey, why don't you let me open in prayer and then we'll, uh, we'll jump in. Lord, we're just thankful for, uh, thankful for scripture, thankful for your revelation of yourself. Um, it says even revelation of ourselves that we get through scripture. Lord, help us to, uh, always be diligent. Help us always to be careful. Um, help us to always put in the time we need to clearly understand the things you've given us to know. Um, I pray that this time you'd help me to speak clearly uh, and that this would be beneficial to all who are here and listening. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we're going to do wisdom books. Yes. So she had a niece that had to have a C-section. Premature. Premature. Okay. It's Nancy's what? Niece? Mike's niece. Okay. We'll pray for that too. Now we just uh, lift up also... Uh, Mike's niece, um, and just the circumstance with young kids, young, young children. Lord, we pray you protect them, um, help them grow strong, uh, help them at the point where they are to to fully develop, um, give assurance to the parents, um, and just help them deal with the added, uh, essentially, burden that uh, raising premature kids will give to them. Lord, help them have the strength and endurance they need. pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, okay, wisdom books. Everything I'm going to tell you came out of a book. <laughs> I read both books, and I, I, you know, I appreciate Keith's talking at the, the grasping God's word and how helpful it is at, at giving us a structure that we can approach Scripture with. So, and and following that, we're going to really pretty much go to that. I just thought this was an entertaining. Uh, Ecclesiastes 12.12, but beyond this, my son, be warned, the writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body, (laughs) as we begin our our diligent study of Scripture. (laughs) Don't be worried. I was entertained by that. So what are the Old Testament wisdom books? Proverbs, Proverbs. Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes. Job. Job. And Song of Solomon, right? Uh, and I left you blanks there, and the notes didn't have those written in, so you get to write those four in. So, <clears throat> um, what we're going to do, we're going to look at generally what Proverbs are. Um, we're going to look at um, what's not, uh, when you think of Proverbs, think of them as generally truth statements. They're not universal truths, but they are generally true. Um, With the idea of wisdom presenting normal truth, the books of Job, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon are somewhat of an exception to normal truth, and I'll explain what those exceptions are. And then we'll go through the principalizing bridge, that whole illustration, and go through the five questions for each of the four books. 
And I'll also try to give you a, a, a structure for each of the four books to keep in mind as you're studying or reading those four books. So that's what we're going to try to do with all four of these. So the purpose of wisdom books. Um, <clears throat> very interesting thing, you know, when you look at... Uh, um, imperatives, uh, the imperatives of obey and, and believe are not in the wisdom books <clears throat> because they're not teaching us how we should do or how we should live, but in a sense, how we should think. If that's a subtle difference, and if we think rightly, we make wise choices, our do's, right, our behaviors will also be good. Um, so it's interesting, obey and believe don't show up, right? Uh, it's only three times do they show up in Job. Proverbs 26, 5, do not believe he who lays up deceit. Um, it's the only time you see believe, it's not an imperative, right? Well, I don't really think it fits as an imperative. But the imperative of wisdom literature, listen, look, think, reflect, those are the words we find in the wisdom literature, right? So if you think, those are all words that are that are that are aimed at how we think, not how we do. If taken to heart, they will develop godly character, a character that will make wise choices. They are not, and you've got to get this part clear, because this is where you can really go wrong, do not take them as universal promises. So, because this is, um, and, and we'll go through a couple examples of those. And it should be, and it should be obvious to you, uh, to some degree once we see that. So, universal versus normal. Many proverbs are not universal. In other words, universal is something that's always true. This statement, if I follow it and apply it, this is always, if I, if A, then B, always. Um, rather, proverbs describe norms, things that are normally true. If you work hard, you will prosper. Is that always true of hard workers? Do hard workers always prosper? So it's not universal, but generally we all agree, right? Hard workers, right, are going to benefit. They're going to prosper. If you do not work hard, right, you will be poor. Well, that's generally true, but it's not always true. Um, so wise, righteous, hardworking people can expect a blessed, prosperous life. Foolish, sinful, lazy people can expect a hard life. Those are generally true, right? So using those as guidelines to help us make choices, we can make wise choices, but they're not guarantees. So this Proverbs or wisdom books are not a book of promises from God, right? So just keep that that in mind. So thinking that as I read these, there's a normal understanding that each of those each of those gives, right? If you work hard, you'll prosper. Okay, there's a normal understanding of that. Of all four of those, you can have a normal implication of what they mean. So when you look at the book, the other three books, other than Proverbs, there's some exceptions to what normally is represented. Is is It's representing something that normally is always going to work, right? Or normally, I, I'm trying to use that word, normally true. Job, Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs have somewhat of an exception to that rule when we put them in the category of wisdom books. We know they're not universal truths, but there's aspects of Job that aren't that just don't represent even a normal truth, right? They're really telling us something that's abnormal. 
is normal, if that makes sense. There are often events in life that humans cannot grasp or understand through the normative wisdom uh, delineated in Proverbs. So when bad things happen to good people, all those general ideas don't work, right? So um, when we say Job is one of those books that departs from, because what happens to Job? Some really terrible things happen to Job. And that's not describing something that should be normative. If you've lived Job's life, this is, these are the things that will happen to you. But something else is going on. So there's another message that's, that's there besides the normal, the normal principle. So sometimes tragedy strikes those who are wise, righteous, and hardworking. And God does not disclose the reasons behind the tragedy. There is, I think, a good learning from us from Job as far as the person who suffers the tragedy and those who are surrounding the person around the tragedy. And we'll talk about those when we get to that book. So Job qualifies the normative wisdom with some real-world experience. So I'm going to say qualifies because we're going to see that those principles, though true, really seem to be almost out of sorts. You can you can kind of say Job's advisors are using this wisdom and as universal truths, and therefore they're explaining Job's problems because of universal truths, which aren't universal, right? They're just normal. So both books taken together, most of life is rational and can be understood. Some events in life, however, are inexplicable to us as humans. Some things in life we will never be able to explain. And there's, a, and there's an aspect of we have, as Christians, there's an acceptance and trust in God that if it's not present, right, we can get shipwrecked by a hard thing happening in our life if we are not looking to God and depending on God rather than expecting God to be rewarding us, right, for our diligence, right? In those events, we are forced to rely on faith in the Creator God. So when those hard things happen, we're forced to trust God. And in the New Testament, I'll even say we're promised trials, right? Which is, which is not, you know, which is not the normative of, of Proverbs, right? Um, so what is Ecclesiastes? So Ecclesiastes is another, is another exception. And Ecclesiastes does something I think still happens today. It's an intellectual search for meaning of life. I'm always, it chuckles me that um, the wisest man, right, other than Christ, the wisest man in the rule in the world takes wisdom and seems to turn it on its head, right? And he uses wisdom to pursue a meaning of life, which it's not intended to do. And it's actually, it actually makes him very cynical, right, in the, in the approach of, of Ecclesiastes. But there's a point to all that in Ecclesiastes, but you've got to take the whole the book as a whole and not take individual chunks. So while being wise is better than being stupid, wisdom doesn't by itself provide the meaning to life. So wisdom is good. We'd rather have wisdom than not, but wisdom isn't going to give us the meaning of life. That's not what it's intended to do. That's what Solomon was trying to do, right? He was trying to give some meaning to life by pursuit of, in, in essence, using his wisdom to some extreme. Um, so while Job tells the story of one exception to the norms of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes chronicles numerous exceptions to the thesis of an ordered rational universe. So 
if the universe were ordered and rational, we should be able to use wisdom to figure out the purpose, right? But it's not, right? Um, so that's the that's ultimately. Uh, so, so there's a conclusion from the whole book. Logic and rational thought or wisdom can help you on a day-to-day basis, but ultimately the meaning of life requires an understanding of and a trust with and a relationship with God. So that, if you get that as the, as the point of where Ecclesiastes takes us, uh, you've really gained um, the big picture. But you've got to take Ecclesiastes as a whole not Ecclesiastes as an individual, not individual uh, elements. And we'll point to those again when we get to the individual book. <clears throat> so another exception um, to the normal aspect, normative, good, practical, wise advice about marriage. We can find that in Proverbs, actually. We can find advice in Proverbs, for example, don't marry women who are quarrelsome, <laughs> Right? So if it says it's better to live on to live on the roof than live in the house with a quarrelsome wife, is that an instruction on where we should live as men? <laughs> Maybe it's the garage now, not the not the uh, not the roof. But uh, but no, it's not an instruction on how to live once we get there. It's an instruction really to how you choose right how you it's really it's really advice about marriage about how we marry and who we marry for women the fate of a lazy fools and drunkards implicitly you don't want to marry a guy who's lazy and foolish because that will be you know hard on you as a wife as well so the picture and in the end when you get to proverbs 31 uh the very end of proverbs it actually paints a picture of the good wife Right. So we can look to Proverbs for wisdom about marriage that's normative, right? But <clears throat> Song of Solomon or Song of Songs doesn't do that. It really is difficult to build a greater love relationship in marriage with only logic and rational thought. Engineers suffer <laughs> when they try to approach marriage with logic and rationale. Right. Married couples also need to be crazy, madly in love, slightly irrational as a couple, as in the Song of Songs. So there's an, there's an aspect of Song of Songs that's really teaching uh, what a normative marriage right, should be like, and particularly maybe focused on, on young and newlyweds. Uh, hopefully we can carry crazy, madly in love, slightly irrational right, throughout our lives. So, there's three exceptions to wisdom is normative, right? Wisdom is generally true. The exceptions are those that are suffering of the righteous that we see in Job, the failure of rational, ordered approach to producing an ultimate meaning, and the third one, irrational, the irrationality of romantic love between a husband and wife. So, those are three, they diverge from what we would say the normative is presented in wisdom literature. There's wisdom in those three points, right? But as, a, but as a whole, you've got to take the books as a whole to get there. Okay, wisdom is poetry. Uh, what are aspects of poetry we learned from two lessons ago? And he went through poetry in like in 15 minutes, I think. So there were parallelism, right? 
is one, and <clears throat> so there's generally two lines that are related that are that are in poetry, right? Since we don't read Hebrew, we don't see the poetry, right? But there's two lines that are making it that are making a, a single unit. And what's the other aspect of poetry? Um, figurative imagery, right? And those two aspects are used um, to greater degrees in some books of these four books and others. Um, some have very, are very high in figurative, but they all have parallelism, right? <clears throat> so they're intended to be poetry. What was the purpose of poetry in Proverbs? To help you memorize, right, this pithy saying that was stated in a way due to rhyme or, or meter that helped you remember, like a, you know, a stitch in time saves nine. You know, there's kind of a cadence to it and there's sort of a rhyme to it. Uh, <clears throat> so examples of parallelism. What is parallelism? Two lines that clearly combine to form one thought, which is very, very common in Proverbs. Some examples. <clears throat> Um, and, and we're going to jump. I'm not going to do just Proverbs, right? But that's used in Job. In Job's complaint, if only my anguish could be weighed and all my misery be placed on scales. That's parallelism. Um, God's response in Job 36.16, He is wooing you from the jaws of distress to a spacious place free from restriction to the comfort of your table laden with choice food. Um <clears throat> Many examples in Ecclesiastes and most of the verses in Song of Solomon's exhibit parallelism. So we're going to see that a lot. So we're going to look for typically two lines, right, combining to make a single thought. Um, just examples for Ecclesiastes, for with, for with such wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. Uh, Song of Songs. Your cheeks are beautiful with earrings and your neck strings of jewels and those are just two statements right communicating um, an appreciation of beauty right um, figurative imagery um, when the author is trying to connect emotionally figurative speech is the most common way to do that so if I were going to take those four books and put them in the order of most likely to communicate emotion, and therefore it's going to be very strong with figurative, right, versus less connection to emotion and have little figurative. How would you stack them up? Which is going to have the most figurative? Song of Songs. Man, that one just jumps out at you, right? Uh, So Song of Songs, huh? And rarely in Proverbs, right? Um, so the next one is Job, then Ecclesiastes, and then Proverbs. So you can kind of see in each of those, Song of Songs is exceedingly emotional, right? Job has elements of emotion and logic. Um, Ecclesiastes, a combination then of, of the two as well, but, but when you get to Proverbs, it's almost exclusively, right? Um, very, very few uses of, of imagery in Proverbs. So just keeping those, these are just principles to keep in mind as you're reading these different books, right? Oh, I had to give you some examples of Texas Proverbs before we jump into some. Uh, <laughs> always drink upstream from the herd. I guess I should, I think I spelled that wrong, didn't I? 
Good judgment comes from experience, and a lot of that comes from bad judgment. I don't take a gen- don't take a genius to spot a goat in a flock of sheep. A worm is the only animal that can't fall down. If you lie down with dogs, you get up with fleas. Don't squat on your spurs. Now that's not parallelism, but you know it is a pithy wisdom statement. If you cut off, if you cut your own firewood, it'll warm you twice. Just because a chicken egg's wings don't mean it can fly. Those are Texas proverbs. Short, pithy sayings, right? Often, two statements tied together, right? So there's proverbs used in many cultures, right? And that's characteristic of proverbs. So specifics. So I said we're going to, for each of the books, I'm going to go through some specifics, some structure to think of, right? And I'm going to refer to this as the safety manual warning for the book of Proverbs, right? And I'm going to give these verses. This is our safety manual with respect to as we try to understand all Proverbs, keep this in mind because this is the point where Proverbs is trying to take us, right? Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your understanding all your ways. Submit to him and he will make your path straight. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So keep that in mind. It's helping us to understand the point of Proverbs, right? It's, it's really pretty plainly explained in those verses. The individual Proverbs reflect general nuggets of wisdom. And this is and not universal truths. And I've said this before, and I can't overemphasize it, because it's the one way we can grossly misapply Proverbs, right? To treat Proverbs as promises from God is to misunderstand the intent of the author. If we ever do that, right, so I, in, in bold underlined, Proverbs gives guidance for life addressing situations that are normally true, right? Not universally true, not always true. And if we treat them that way, right, we're actually doing error. We're not doing what the context of Proverbs is trying to do because it's trying to help us appreciate the fear of the Lord. It's trying to help us have understanding if we submit to God that he will give us guidance. He will help us make good choices. Um, But there's no guarantee, right, of results. So specifics of Proverbs. Consider, um, okay, here's the, is, is this guidance or a promise of God? So I've already kind of gone through this, but if you look at these verses, do you take them to be, Universal truths, promises from God, or just general guidance. Lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. Is that always true? No. Is it generally true? Yes. Right? Three nine. Honor the Lord with all your wealth, with the first fruits of your crops, then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. Thinking we're speaking to an agricultural um, culture. So, uh, if we honor the Lord with our wealth and the first fruits uh, of our of your crops, then your barns will be filled with overflowing, and your vats will be brim, will brim over with new life. Does that mean those all of Israel 
who was present in a famine, right, failed those principles. Unlikely, right? Regardless of how they honored the Lord with their crops, right? Their barns weren't filled overflowing. So it's not universally true, right? But it's generally true. So we're going to go through the five steps. The four, we're going to go through all five steps for each of the books. Uh, what did the text mean to the biblical audience? Really interesting. So if Proverbs, if the principle of Proverbs are a general truth, uh, that's a principle that's generally true, but not always true. If it's a valid truth, I mean, if that statement's true, what's probably a character, what do we expect as far as in their own town versus our town when we look at Proverbs? How much change is there going to be if it's a principle of truth that's generally true? Does it change over time? Not really, right? So remember, they're, they're, they're not universal promises. Proverbs were and are guidelines and sound advice for character formation, decision-making. Proverbs, and then, then I want to get you a picture of some aspect of Proverbs 1 through 9, or all of Proverbs. So 1 through 9 is kind of an exception to the proverb parallelism because each of those books in 1 through 9 in a chapter is almost a point. Right, A point's being made with a chapter rather than just a verse and two lines of verse. So to get the picture from the first nine books of Proverbs, you've really got to read a chapter at a time and sometimes more than a chapter to get the point that's being made by those Proverbs. Uh, <clears throat> so you just got to know that, right? You've got to know that that's the case, and it actually becomes apparent as you read them, right? Um after we get past nine, we're going to jump into parallelisms, right? And they're going to be often unconnected. So Daniel Estes suggests that the primary role of the whole book um, is to speak to youth. So one through nine is primarily directed at youth. So Daniel Estes, whoever he is, the books point out, actually says the whole book actually is aimed at youth. An example he gives is, is Proverbs twenty-five, twenty-four: better to live in the corner of a roof than share the house with a quarrelsome wife. You know, I already talked about that's not that's not instruction on where we should live, depending on how our wife treats us, right? That's an instruction to a young person before they get married to be careful as you select a spouse, right? Not to pick an argumentative, quarrelsome wife. Uh, <clears throat> so it's it, it's wisdom, right? It kind of makes sense, and it, and if we apply it, and if we can. Apply it, <laughs> you know, isn't that, that's one of those wisdoms that's overwhelmed by emotion possibly somewhere in there. But, you know, think wisely as you're choosing to get married. So one through nine is comprised of longer units uh, rather than just the two lines. Uh, <clears throat> Proverbs 5 must be taken together for it comprises a complete unit, one that warns the reader of the dangers of the consequences of sexual immorality. So if you just take Proverbs 5, take it all together, and it ultimately is pointing to one point, right, um, the consequences of sexual immorality. Proverbs 9 through, or 10 through 29, so that's like the next 19, right, or probably like 20, right, or that's probably actually 20 chapters, right, contain 
what is typically referred to as Proverbs. They're primarily two-line statements that are often unconnected. There might be a few passages that are related on the same topic. Um, but generally, they're just going to be individual Proverbs, just like don't squat on your spurs, and that's the end of that. We don't need to say any more, right? Drink up street of a herb. Don't drink, you know. It's a general statement that's not connected to anything else. So the, the list I gave you wasn't connected of Texas Proverbs. That's typically what you're going to see in Proverbs 10 through 29. They're general truthful statements, right? Not universal statements. Um, and they're not specifically collectively pointing to any particular truth. <clears throat> so here, the historical culture context, context grasp the text in their own town, takes on an important role. Because, to some degree, we're talking to an agricultural society, right? Um, where those where those principles are coming to be applied. So when I get to Proverbs 31 through 39, they're slightly longer units. They actually stretch into several verses, um, and they, they, those are the Proverbs of Lem, of King Lem, Lem, Lemuel, whatever. And then Proverbs 31. 10 through 31 is an acrostic describing the wife of true and wise character must be taken as a unit. So if you want to, um, as a young man, you know, what do you, what are you looking for in a, in a wife? You know, Proverbs 31, 10 through 31 would give you a full picture of the characteristics of a, of a good, true and wise wife. Um, and you would take them all collectively, right? Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised that there weren't someone who's built something like that. <laughs> I mean, if we've built... Yeah. Well, the, the gen, generally f- from those, those center sections from 10 to 29, they're typically going to be not... They're not building to a point, right? And they're general individual truths, yeah. right? But you will, as you read come across some that seem to be around the same topic, right? Um, and I think the point is, just to understand, as I read 1 through 9, I'm really looking at chapters, right? As I get through 10 to 29, I am in a collection of, of pithy proverbs, right? And when I get to 30, right, they're going to be longer units. And when I get to 31, 3110, it's a specific message, right, that's being brought. So that's just a structure to have in front of us as you approach Proverbs to know, uh, to know when I'm in 1 through 9, I'm looking typically at a chapter at a time to get the point, right? And so it's just easier to navigate a little bit because you kind of know it. It's a little bit of having a roadmap to know what, what to expect, right? Um, and that's all I'm trying to give you with this general, right, this general frame, framework of each of the books. Um, it is helpful, right? Um, so to say you can you can find collections of proverbs possibly on a specific topic, yes, you can, right? But they're not they're not put together that way as far as we can tell, right? Uh, so first we said right, grasp the text in their own town. You know the point of that, right? Is did the text mean what did it mean to the original audience and what does it mean to us now? For proverbs, they're pretty close to the same, right? 
What it meant in, the, in that time, what it means in this time, is very close to the same. What's the difference between the biblical audience and us? The river's narrow, <laughs> uh, and it's shallow, right? There's not a great deal of difference from what it means to them to what it means to us. Um, you have to keep in mind that it's an agrarian context, and occasionally there's references to kings. So you have to do some manipulation to understand how do I take a statement about a king and relate that to today in a society where we have no kings, right? So in general, you might say the kings might become someone in leadership and, and think of them that way. But that doesn't always work either. But, but generally... Um, but generally, that's true. So we don't have kings now, but we do have leaders. So, so what Dave is saying is Proverbs is pointing itself points to the references to king would also apply to lower levels within a kingly government, right? <clears throat> Most proverbs speak of situations that have not changed much through human history. So if they were truly general principles that were generally true, they should stay the same over time, right? And they do. Uh, step three, cross and principalize, the principalizing bridge. Uh, what is the theological principle in this text? Um, remember the three exceptions. There's three exceptions to wisdom literature that aren't normative, that, that they don't represent the norm, right? Um, and those apply specifically to Job, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs. Uh, remember, Proverbs are guidelines to develop character to help one, in, one make life's choices, and the principles are normally true, but not universally so. So that's, those are the principles we need to carry over. There's not, a, there's not a big change, right? That was true for them, it's true for us. Um, <clears throat> consulting the biblical map, how does our theological principles fit with the rest of the Bible? Does the New Testament teaching modify or qualify the principles, and if so, how? I think if you said anything, the New Testament might only echo right, the, some of the Proverbs rather than alter or change. So many of the themes of Proverbs are likewise actually reflected in the New Testament. Um, the theme of wealth as a blessing from God goes, does undergo some change in general. So we clearly see in Proverbs that the theme of wealth relating to blessings from God. However, in the New Testament, right, what is a blessing is in particularly related to eternity, right? More than it is to temporal. Um, so rather than relating to present temporal, uh, present material wealth, it's, it's rewarding, its reward is for righteous living is more of a blessing from God. So in the New Testament, wealth is, unless wealth is in the New Testament an eschatological blessing that is joint that is enjoyed in the world to come so in eternity for example store for yourself treasures in heaven right why do we store them in heaven because you know secure. they're secure right um, <clears throat> the epistles promise a multitude of blessings to those who faithfully serve the lord 
But nowhere does Paul promise material wealth as a blessing. And following Jesus may actually result in the loss of material wealth. <laughs> so the idea of righteousness that might be be presented in Proverbs um, is a little bit, I'm going to say, modified or changed because we're going to see it's focused more on the eternal blessing, right? A long-term blessing um, than it is to material blessings. So there is a there is a doctrinal change, right? that we see from the New Testament to the Old Testament with respect to Proverbs. So step five, grasp the text in your own town. Uh, how should individual Christians live out this modified theological principle? Um, what's, our, what's the goal of wisdom in Old Testament? And, and you know, prior to, how, how should I say that? What is the point of wisdom to the original hearers of Proverbs, and what is the point of wisdom to us today? It's the same, right? So the goal of wisdom is to develop character. As our character changes, so will our behavior. So Proverbs is more about um, how we think, right, than how we do. Um, an example, Proverbs 5.1, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Uh, we would so we would tend to we would want to speak gently, not harshly, specifically in heated situations, and we see a parallel to that in Ephesians four two, that completely humble and gentle, or be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bear with one another in love. So we see a command or a direction to uh, gentle, right? A gentle answer. It's not quite the same context as as Proverbs fifty one one, but humility. Gentleness, fruits of the Spirit, are lining up more closely, right, with the Proverbs 51.1, right? So there is a parallel uh, in the New Testament to the Old Testament from that perspective. So, again, with respect to Proverbs, grasp the text in our own town, it's not much different, right, for the original hearers than it is for us today. So let's look at some specifics. So we've gotten through... Um, general, and we've gone through Proverbs. I'm going to do the same thing. What are some specific points about Job to keep in mind as we look at Job? The book of Job is a story. It's a, it has movement. It has a sequence. It has a plot. There's uh, major misinterpretations will emerge if you pull a verse from Job out of context and try to interpret it independent from the from um, if so, I, did I, I think I typed that right. It's in Proverbs. Well, one thing you will get major misinterpretations if you were to read the advice of Job's advisors, as thinking that these are restatements of, of general principles, parallels which have parallels in Proverbs, but those guys in Job. He he. They're using all those statements, which they don't have the book of Proverbs, right? But they're lose, they're using those same wisdom principles as universal truths, not general truths, and they're judging everything. And they're, all the advice they're giving to Job are based on these ideas being universal truths, and therefore we understand what's going on with you, Job. Uh, because these universal truths. So, some structure for Job, 
uh, 1, 1 through 2, 1 is Job's affliction. That's when all the hard stuff happens to Job. Job 2, 11 through 37, 24. Man, that's a big chunk. Job and his friends search unsuccessfully for a rational answer of why the things happening to Job are happening to Job. And they are doing the very thing that I think we can be guilty of today. We try to apply normative principles of Proverbs right, to explaining what's going on in reality in our lives, um, and, we, and we come up with the wrong answer. So we can do the same thing Job's friends did. Um, 38, uh, 1 through 41, 6 is Job's answer. Is God's, God answers Job's accusations. Remember, Job wants to go to trial with God to justify that he's been treated wrongly by God, right? Um, and God gently corrects him, and he really pounds on his advisors. Job's friends are rebuked, and Job is restored in 42 through the end, 42, 7 through 17. Uh, so just keeping that in mind, and to grasp Job, you have to take the book as a whole. Again, you can't take individuals, and you're just way primed to get misinterpretations if you take sections out of Job. Uh, and the really interesting thing of all, you know, and I think we got this when when Keith taught Job, you know, years ago. Ultimately, Job never gets to to know why. In all that God answers him, it's almost like God God just declares, "I'm sovereign." Who are you, right? And he has to accept who God is, trust in God, and look to God, and move forward. Um, and he never gets an explanation for what happens. So there's an aspect. So there's an aspect to us. <clears throat> well, I'll, well, I'll get to them. So they're going to come through these. I can't jump the gun. Please. Grasp, yes. I may be out in left field, but this just—I I just thought of this when you were saying. Uh huh. So Job's the first book written. Yes, and they don't have all the proverbs. Yeah, yeah. I just, sorry, I just... Yeah, and amazing, but isn't it amazing, too, that those guys in Job's story are are essentially using the wisdom ideas, many of which we could find in Proverbs, but that's not where they're getting them from, yeah. right? They're relying on those principles to be true and, and uniform, and we do the same thing, right? Um so what did the text mean to the biblical audience, right? It is critical to remember that the central lessons of the book aren't evident until you get to the last two sections. So when you read Job, and that's a long read, right, 42 chapters, you've got to get to the last four chapters to really grasp the whole point of Job. If you try to draw conclusions before that, you're just likely to come up with wrong applications, wrong wrong basis, and wrong answers, right? Um the bad assumptions of Job's friends, through wisdom, this is what they believe. Through wisdom, they have access to all the information they need to solve Job's problem. Right? Through wisdom, they can understand everything Job needs to know. That's wrong, right? <laughs> right? Through wisdom, they can correctly answer Job's problems. Right? And again, they're taking 
wisdom principles as universal truths, right? And what we know about Proverbs is you can't take them that way, right? <clears throat> Confess. Yeah. Even though they knew him and what they were accusing him of was was reasonable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Truly. So here's here's kind of a message. Right? Rather than comforting their friend, they seek to explain. There's a nugget in that to us. How often does somebody we know have a trial, a difficult thing in their life? And what do we do? We jump to Romans 8, 28, and 29. Rather than mourning with them, rather than understanding and enduring what's going on with them, right? We try to be Job's advisors, <laughs> and we really have no place, right, in trying to explain to those people what's going on or why this tragedy should be, you know, reassuring to them because God's going to eat it for good. No, just comfort them, just be with them, just encourage them, right? Just be beside them. And God will do what God's going to do. And we know what God's going to do. We can have trust and confidence in God without, I think, pounding a brother and sister in Christ. And I'm going to, I, actually, I'm, I've jumped ahead. It's in my notes yeah, later. I think it's, to be fair to Job's friends, mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is way beyond what most of us Which would do. Which most of us would do. <laughs> yeah, true. Um, <clears throat> if they just not, if they just there. Yeah, right. If they just stopped there, they'd have been better off. What are the differences between biblical audience and us? Um, the differences between the ancient audience and us is not too great. Um, so it says no great is not great. We can uh, misapply the theology of Proverbs in much the same way as Job's friends did. Maybe we're actually inclined to the same error. You know, um, was the theological principle of, the, of this text: God is sovereign; we are not. Um, God knows all, and we know little. And we can see that in Job's life, right? You can see that in his advisors' lives, right? God is always just. He does not disclose his ex- or he does not disclose his explanations to us, um, and God expects us to trust his character, his sovereignty, when unexplained tragedy strikes. So, can we just and and how many people have you run across where uh, they cannot submit to God because of something? You know, their husband passed away, and. They are, and their husband was a believer. They were not, and they are just angry with God, right? Because that person passed away, and their response is completely contrary. So the lessons of the lessons of Job, and you could say the lessons of Ruth, are are kind of um, unseen by them, right? But ultimately, God is sovereign. God is in control. We don't have the ability to understand what's going on. We should just trust in God and be and be confident in who God is. Be confident in the character of God, right? Yeah. Uh, the second part of number three. Yeah. Um, 
I think that we do figure out that time, at times we do understand I, the reasons behind certain trials. I most I, I will I will agree with you that in time we can often look back and see benefits, right? from harsh things that happened in our life. And we can look back and see how there were individuals benefited. Maybe even the person who was, you know, suffering was benefited. But we can see how God uses, we can see the truth of Romans 8, 20, 29, right? Uh, but it often comes in hindsight, and often comes in looking back, and it often comes after the after the passing of a great deal of time. So, what we can't do is, as as you know, Dave pointed out, give them only give only seven days, <laughs> right? We just have to be patient to let God reveal what God reveals when God wants it revealed and understood. So, uh, yeah. About the theology, the Jews, Jesus' time had still had this understanding mm-hmm. of God's blessing of people, and Jesus corrected them. He gave them several specific examples where we know the blind man exposes his blind mm-hmm. sin. No, he was he did nothing wrong. Was, this is all to glorify God. This was his purpose. So in that case he explained the purpose. Yeah. For that thing. But he said it was not it was not a cause and effect relationship like you were saying. Yeah, and it went for years. That guy's whole life goes without right? He suffers for years for this point in time where Christ is going to do this healing, that God can be glorified, right? Yeah, so, yeah, it may not be apparent immediately when it happens. But yeah, it does happen, and that principle is, I like that, I appreciate that, Dave, is, is actually shown in the New Testament, right? Yeah, I, I think I think we see in 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 the epistles that there, God has a purpose for trials to, to grow us. Um, he actually, we're promised trials more than we're promised blessings, but, uh, but in the goodness of God, um, you know, we can have confidence and trust in Him. So, <sighs> right, often are not material, right? Yeah. yeah. So, Consult the biblical map. So how does so I'm taking this interpretation of Job. What's my big picture? Look at the whole Bible. How does this theological principle fit with the rest of the Bible? Does New Testament teaching modify or qualify this? If so, how? The New Testament predicts numerous places that those who live in obedience to Christ will suffer persecution. The New Testament presents suffering as a normal feature. We've just talked about this, right? The New Testament suggests uh, that the relation that the righteous believer glorifies God enduring unjust hardship. So, um, so it's a it's a modification in a sense. It, it's a more complete view of hardship, right? We get from the New Testament, coupled with we've seen the example in Job, right? Essentially, and in Ruth, maybe even more clearly in Ruth. Uh, <clears throat> So what is the role of our brother or sister who is suffering, right? Just to just to bear with them, right? Don't try to, Romans 8, 28, 29 to them. Don't try to give them the answer. Let God reveal it when God reveals it, even as Mike points out, right? 
Uh, grasp the text in our own town. How should individual Christians live out this modified theological principle? Um, some learning from us, it's wrong to cry out in anger and frustration against God. I am guilty of saying, God, why are you doing this to me? Um, there's probably no answer in the human realm to the why question. Um, accept that. Our focus and our grief should be on the character of God and friends should be are, are to comfort and share in grief, not explain, not try to explain the circumstance, right? Believe or try to fix anything, right? Just, just comfort and share in the grief. Um, isn't it interesting that we can actually get that insight from the book of Job? <laughs> That's yeah. Um, I don't think it's ever explicitly explained in there, but but we can see some benefit in that, right? I, I think if we if we look at our problems, we can compare it to Job. It's not. <laughs> yes, right. If we look at our problems, our problems are often very minor uh, compared to Job. I don't know. Mine are always worse than <laughs> That's true. You know, I, you know, I was thinking, looking at those tornado pictures. You know, from this last Saturday and just seeing whole neighborhoods just scraped clean, right? Thinking what's thinking of hardships we do or what I whatever sufferings I may have and I don't that that's just one aspect of what happened to Job to Job's family, right? There's like three or four other things Job gets besides that. <clears throat> so we got through Job, we got some general ideas. Some structure, some structure of Job, understanding we've got to look at the whole book to get the, to get the big picture. And it's not until the very end of Job where we're going to get the full picture, right? So be patient. Uh, that's one of those times where reading the book over and over may have more benefit, right, than reading through it once. Yeah, we know more than Job does. <laughs> yeah. Specifics of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is similar to Job in that the literary context of the entire book must be considered analyzed. So the same as we got to read all of Job, the similar truth is true with Ecclesiastes. To really appreciate Ecclesiastes, we've got to grasp what the book is telling us as a whole, not what individual chapters or verses are telling us. The book is an intellectual search for the meaning of life. The ultimate answer is found at the very end. The same as Job, right? It's not to get to the end that the answer is made apparent. So it's filled with satire, sarcasm. The tone is cynical in nature and even bitter until the end, right? Um, so keeping that in mind that this is a satirical, sat- sarcastic, cynical um thinking, right, of the wisest person in the world who's turned wisdom on its head, right, to try to explain the meaning of life, which can't be done. Uh, So one through six, and one, chapters one through six, can purpose be found in, and he goes through thing after thing after thing. That's why I say it's like, it's like crazy. He's turned wisdom on its head in what he's trying to do. Um, in 7 through 11, the nature and limitation of wisdom itself. In 
ultimately, what do we get from, from chapter 12? Fear God and keep His commandments, implying that obedience to God is better than trying to grasp understanding. Isn't it interesting a parallel, right? A, a minor parallel to what we just got from Job, right? Um, but it's but it's a continuous striving to understand. They were trying to understand in Job, and they were failing, right? Uh, ultimately, in a, in essence, uh, Solomon does a similar thing, right? Just trying to explain the, the value of life or what's important in life, and ultimately, just fear the Lord and keep His commandments is the bottom line. So what did the text mean to the biblical audience? Apart from God. So keep in mind, an aspect of the wisdom books are pointing us to God. And if we don't have God as our focus and our understanding, the true value of all these books is completely lost. Right? Apart from God, life is meaningless. Wisdom is not bad, but it doesn't provide the meaning to life. Uh, Wisdom does not explain the contradictions of life. It only points them out. Therefore, people should simply trust God. The same meaning as Job, right? Life, therefore, is not a puzzle to be completely understood, but a gift of God to be enjoyed. Similar to Song of Solomon, just enjoy your spouse, right? Um, interesting, an interesting, from a big picture perspective, the parallels between the wisdom books. Um, step two for Ecclesiastes, right? Measure the width of the river, right? What is the difference between the biblical audience and us for Ecclesiastes? Uh, I'm going to say, don't we do the very same things today trying to explain life, the meaning of life in some fashion, right? The human need to intellectually search for and find the meaning of life uh, and our futile attempts to find meaning through wealth, entertainment, work, philosophy. And I added, the book doesn't have it in it, but I added religion and so on, is also fairly universal. So the river, not the rive, but the river is both narrow and shallow. So what happens in Ecclesiastes goes on today. It doesn't have to be the wisest man in the world. It just has, it has to be almost anybody who fails to acknowledge God, which ultimately is where Ecclesiastes points us to, right? Uh, the teacher seems to have a limited... Under, here's an interesting point, though, with respect to uh, Ecclesiastes. The writer of Ecclesiastes doesn't seem to have a concept of eternity in his perspective of the analysis right, that he does. There's, there's really not a place for how does eternity fit in? How does eternal life, how does, and, and maybe the word the, the word the book uses, afterlife, how does the concept of an eternal kingdom apply? It seems to kind of be absent in Ecclesiastes and Solomon's thinking. So as a New Testament believer, we know the meaning of, the meaning for people is tied to the kingdom of Christ, and the significant dimension of this is spiritual, not physical. So we understand there's a spiritual component that's missed by Solomon, essentially, right, in Ecclesiastes. Uh, and so we've got a better picture from New Testament revelation. I think understanding um, 
eternity and, and where our position is in that. So what's the theological principle in its context? How do we apply that as we cross the principalizing bridge? Because the river is narrow, and most theological principles that can be developed from various texts in Ecclesiastes will be similar to those. So if I go back, so what are those... So when we get to when we get to the principalizing bridge, what are the central ideas that we got from Ecclesiastes? Apart from God, life is meaningless. Wisdom does not explain the contradictions in life, and life therefore is not a puzzle to be completely understood. If that's what we get out of, if that's what the original reader got out of Ecclesiastes, what do we get out of it? It's very similar, right? Um, <clears throat> So here is an interesting point. How does our theological principle fit with the rest of the Bible? Does the New Testament teach and modify or qualify? The New Testament stresses the relationship with God must be the center of life, death and resurrection. So it's interesting that we've in the Old Testament, the focus is on God. In the New Testament, the focus is on the Trinity, right? And I'm going to say more specifically Jesus Christ. And now... The understanding of life and death and resurrection is all in relationship to, to Jesus Christ because he's the first resurrected, right? Resurrection is true for all of us or we're the worst of all, right, people. Um, so we have an added understanding. So apart from God, life is meaningless from what the original readers would have gotten to what we have now. So apart from Jesus Christ, life is meaningless. But isn't Jesus Christ God? So it's a very fine difference, right? But Jesus Christ is now part of our understanding, and the gospel is now part of our understanding, and salvation and how salvation is accomplished, right? That mystery has been given to us. So we have a different, um, I think, a little bit ability to 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 draw some conclusions that um, I'm going to say even... even uh, Understanding Scripture is inspired by God, right? As it's written, it's full of truth, and it's still true. Um, but Solomon was having difficulty getting to that point because he didn't have that, right? He didn't have that focus in his understanding. He didn't know the end of the story, <clears throat> of the story right? Not like we do, certainly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think Ecclesiastes is, is intended to be Solomon's communication again to his son, right? Sure. The same as the same as Proverbs, and not all of Proverbs is by Solomon, but but the same idea is true, right? And and specifically, look at chapters one through nine. That's very specifically focused on Solomon to his son, right, and avoiding uh, sexual immorality uh, and where that goes. Um, but yeah, even Ecclesiastes. So you know, if books I would like for us to be able to teach with youth, which we don't, is is um, we do aspects of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes both. You know, they would be. I think they'd be valuable to youth because that's the point. Of who all those books are really aimed at. Yeah. Well, Solomon's 
his children is a direct contradiction of that if you took that literally. Yeah. Yeah, and, and there's much debate on how we understand that, that verse as well. So. Uh, so the New Testament presents a clearer picture of a glorious, victorious, victorious eternity when all wrongs will be corrected and all suffering will pass away. So a more full, we have a different perspective really than probably the readers then had and the, what we do now. So how should individual Christians live out this modified theological principle? Remember, apart from relationship with Jesus Christ, life is meaningless. Man, that's easy. <laughs> without having to go through all of Ecclesiastes, right? The world suffers, uh, the world offers meaning, so this is what really tries to happen in the world. The world tries to offer meaning that can be found in education, work, health, pleasure, uh, or in your best life now, if you're Joel Osteen. But only a relationship with God, the Creator, gives life meaning, right? Um, Even Joel Osteen is corrupted, right? The truth of Scripture. So, the last book. i got 20 minutes. And this is going to go fast. So we're going to finish early. <clears throat> Specifics of Song of Solomon or Song of Songs. Why is it called the Song of Solomon? There's a couple verses that actually mention Solomon in Song of Songs. right? It is, it is, in essence, a collection of love poems between a young man and a young woman, the Shulamite. Right? So, the structure of Song of Songs... Uh, 1, 2 through 3, 5 is a courtship. 3, 6 to 5, 1 is a wedding. And 5, 2, 8, 14 is a life of love. Um, the book has been treated allegorically. Uh, and, and it's interesting, you can read through the book and it talks about... <laughs> so in the time of, of uh, when there were uh, you know, priests and... Um, and uh, uh, what was what was what was Luther? He was a monk, right? And and all these people who weren't married, trying to understand and interpret Solomon, Song of Songs, right? To these people that haven't been married is is a challenge, right? But we have tried to allegorize it because it gets away from the sensual nature of some aspects of Song of Solomon, and that is a failure, right? When you try to allegorize that to say um, this is about Christ and the church, it's not, right? That allegory fails as you get through specifics of Song of Solomon. Um, right. The original audience could no way have understood that, right? Right. So, and... You know, I'm I'm absolutely convinced God intended, God gave us a written word for us to understand. It's understandable. It's in a language. The principles of language apply, and so there's not hidden meanings <laughs> in books, right? It just means what it says. Um, so scholars today are virtually unanimous and reject all the allegorical interpretations. But it's been done. You can find books on Song of Songs or Song of Solomon that are allegorizing the whole thing. What did it mean to the biblical audience? We don't know how the book was used in ancient Israel, but it's suspected it was actually read or sung at weddings. We don't know that. I couldn't prove that. I couldn't tell you that. But 
Um, it would make sense, right? The lyrics of Song of Songs are addressed to a man or to the woman and not to God. Interesting. It's a, it's a communication of, of, you know, a husband and wife to each other, right? It's not a communication to God. Um, as wisdom literature, the book provides a model of how a husband and wife were to feel towards one another and how they were to express their feelings. What if we just take Song of Songs, right, as a book? It's a parallel to Ephesians 5, but giving us some different detail about how we should live as as uh, as, as husband and wife. Um, the wise, righteous person is seen as madly in love with his or her spouse. So it's almost as if there's irrationality to love rather than logic. Um, <clears throat> so what are the differences between the biblical audience and us? This is probably one of the ones that's the most difficult, if, if that's fair. Why? Because the pictures, the figurative language, we can't identify with at all. <laughs> Well, a lot of it, let's just say. The joy and irrationality of, of being madly in love has not changed. That's not changed, right? Uh, we do encounter trouble in appreciating the imagery that's used, right? So, how beautiful are you, my darling? Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats. Descending from the hills of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep, just shorn, coming up from the washing. Each has its twin. <laughs> Not one of them is alone. She has all her teeth. <laughs> your life is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are a pool of are the pools of Heshbon by the gate of Bathrabin. Your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon <laughs> looking toward Damascus. <laughs> so I just had to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I would say, in America, their view of what marriage is, or if, if there even is such a thing as marriage anymore, right? Uh, I would say a lot of the feelings that are expressed in Song of Solomon is probably pretty universal mm-hmm. in people that are someone that's attracted to someone else in any culture. Yes. Yes. But in some cultures, those feelings are not associated. Mm. Or your spouse. Mm. And I would say that may largely be true in the Old Testament. Mm. I would not have wanted to be David's wife. Yeah, yeah. Or Solomon's for that matter. Or Solomon's. (laughs) This is not what was going on in their marriage. Yeah, yeah.
Why, why did the wisest man have so many concubines and wives? <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous. Um, I don't know. It emphasizes the fallen nature of man. I can't think what else. You know, the lust, huh? Yeah. 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 So, yeah, the fallen nature of man and the lust of man, the lust of the heart, uh, you can't help but think that was a driver for Solomon, you know, sadly. <sighs> sadly, and, and you see what happens in his life is a play out of Ecclesiastes as he's trying to find meaning and some purpose in these extremities that he goes to and having many wives is part of that, right? So uh, look to Ecclesiastes to understand the foolishness of Solomon, right? Any theological principles must be built on similarities between their situations and ours. One of the main theological principles that emerges from many passages of Song of Songs is that the person seeking to live a wise, godly life should be madly in love with his or her husband and wife and should express this love in strong, emotional, sappy, mushy terms. So wouldn't that be just, wouldn't that be a beauty of Song of Songs if we just walked out of it with that? And we, you know, there was, in the book it kind of said, there should be a requirement for newlyweds on their honeymoon to read Song of Songs to each other. I don't know if, if that would help or not. But, uh, yeah. Uh, I think if I told my wife that her nose is like a... <laughs> <laughs> would kind of you, would, you, would, you, would you would probably laugh hysterically as you're, as you're both trying to read this to each other, knowing that you're, in theory, expressing the love and appreciation of the beauty of each other. So, yes, it would be a... Yeah, yeah. Interesting, true. Uh, it's interesting when you look at Ephesians five. You know, how Ephesians five it is it removes the emotion to a sense, and it just goes to the root of the problems. And this is how you, as married people, need to approach. This is what you, right? You husband aren't told to rule. You are told to love, right? And and you wife are just told to submit. And if those two things are done well. Right, the marriage will flourish, and we can do the Song of Songs with each other. Right, um, the New Testament does not really modify the principles from Step Three in this case. Ephesians five twenty through thirty one, the command to husbands and wives love and submission corresponds well with the main principles of Step Three. Right. Uh, 
Um, <clears throat> we should manly express our love to each other. Right? It's kind of what the point of step three was. Grassman text in our own town. How should individual Christians live out this modified theological principle? Note that the celebration of sexuality of Song of Songs is apparently directed to married couples and those approaching marriage. So focus on who Song of Songs is, is pointed to, not the failings of Solomon from the big picture, not the failings of Solomon and Ecclesiastes. Right? So hopefully, so hopefully what you've got is a structure to look at each of the four books, an understanding of how, right, Ecclesiastes and Job must be taken as a whole to get to the end, to get the, to get the final message from both of those books, and possibly the Song of Songs. What if there's a truth, a general truth that's there, that uh, throw logic and wisdom aside and just enjoy one another as a spouse, husband and, as a husband and wife. Um, what benefit we'd all get if we could pursue that. So, Let's close in prayer. Uh, and as far as homework assignment, I'm, there wasn't one assigned in there. Uh, it says to be, to be assigned. I didn't ask Keith, but I would do the first, um, the 22-1. If you want an assignment to do so, it's the it's going to take you an exercise through three through three proverb statements to apply those five steps. Just try to use the five principalizing steps, right, to go through uh, three proverbs. Should be, and you can look at look at the look at the notes with respect to how you know we apply those five steps to proverbs, and look at those five individual proverbs and try to do the same. So. Let's close in prayer, <clears throat> and then we have questions. Yes. Um, can we add my mom to this prayer? Yes. She's uh, she has not been awake for three days now. Oh. So where's your mom at right now? She's in the living facility with my dad. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm gonna go see her in the morning. Um, but she has oxygen, but she's you know if you don't hydrate. Hmm. So they, they do an IV for her or something? Or? They won't do that in the living facility. She has to go to the hospital. And then, I don't know. I, so what, when you say not awake, what does that mean? She's uh, not in well, a coma, but... She's been breathing, but not eating or drinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, I don't know if she's still like under the influence of all the opioids that, mm-hmm. that they gave her mm-hmm. and stuff. What's her name? Dolores. Dolores. Okay. Let's pray about Dolores. Father, we just are, uh, oh, grieved um, to hear the hard circumstance that um, Mike's mother's um, living. Uh, we just pray for uh, pray for wisdom with the facility, with the doctors um, who can do what's the best for her that they would have an understanding of what's going on. Pray that you would preserve her, strengthen her, um, bring her to a, a conscious alertness, allow her body to, to do what it's supposed to do as far as processing.
nutrients and food. Lord, just give her your grace. Give her your comfort. Um, Lord, we don't have to understand all the detail. We can just simply trust in you. Um, and we can have confidence that you will do what's best and right. Um, but we do desire to see her recover. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Hmm. So nothing I gave you guys, you can't get out of the book. So I am not wise at all without the book. I have a question about yeah, uh, the, yeah, both, and I, both books. In yeah. General. Um, <clears throat> what is what is in each of these books that we we have a conflict of of agreeing with the way they. I have, there's so much in here that I've read that is, is not... You'd have, you'd have to point out specific things in that book. Yeah. Um, they have a different approach. Uh, as, I, as I read the wisdom section in the... Right, how to read the Bible for all it's worth. Um, it goes through some of the same verses, some examples, and, and it identifies um, misinterpretations that can be done. So it... it but I like the methodical way that this book goes through thinking how to think through the books with a guideline. So I appreciate what this book does. But I didn't, I didn't find anything I had trouble with in the wisdom chapter here. Um, I mean, not, not just in the wisdom, but yeah, yeah. But in general, when they I think, so Fee, is it, so Fee and Stewart are both reliable theologians that we would we would look at these guys as doing the very things we're asking to be done and how we read and understand Scripture. These guys are thinking the same way, right? So yeah. I think you, have, you know, one of the things you have to be careful with in, in some books is be careful when there's a caveat that this is a wrong theology. You can miss that in the reading and, and read something and think it's a right theology where... You miss the, the the finesse of the wording that's pointing out something that's actually wrong rather than something that's helpful. But so if you, if you, um, time, uh, you know the cultural real, relativity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I guess so. The mid '80s to '92, that's the end of that chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to discuss that maybe in detail. Just to well, I could read it. Maybe why don't I why don't I read that? What chapter is it then? Okay. On page eighty-four is the starting of the cultural. I can read. I can read chapter four, and then maybe we can talk about it. Not that I'm, not that I, not that I'm a reliable source, but I will give you my best effort. I just, I just feel like I'm reading that, and then I'm getting more confused. Yeah. Because I don't feel like it's either explained enough, or is it just simply saying we really don't know? Well, let me read it and try to get the the gist of that chapter, and I'll we'll talk. That'll be fun. Look forward to that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Twenty-two dash one is the assignment. Besides the reading. <laughs> <laughs>